Hello and welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show all about workers' rights and social justice. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast to you around the country on Community Radio Network. I'm Dennis Rovetiuk. Last week we witnessed the shocking revelations of torture of Aboriginal teenagers and children in the Northern Territory detention centres, reminiscent of the scenes of Guantanamo Bay and Abogarib. The outrage sparked off a series of protests and demonstrations throughout the country, including an hours-long occupation of public space and intersection in front of Flinders Street Station. Malcolm Turnbull announced a royal commission into the torture in detention centres in Northern Territory. But perhaps listeners would, be, would agree that first and foremost, all juveniles and children should be released from detention, and the massive waste of taxpayers' money, known as the Royal Commission into Unions, should be scrapped immediately. Moving on now, last week the Australian industrial relations landscape was rocked by the Polar Fresh strike organized and led by the union members and delegates at the cold storage warehouse in Trugonina in Melbourne's west. The demands of the 650 workers were simple. A $3 rise in wages from $27 an hour to $30 an hour, as well as improved job security and reduction in number of labor hire jobs on the site. The previously organized uh, strike ballots among the members resulted in an unprecedented 94% support for an indefinite strike action. Early in the morning of July 27th, the strike began with the picket of the warehousing facility in Trugonina and continued on until late on Friday when the strikers, backed by the National Union of Workers, announced they had achieved a favorable agreement with the company. This was achieved despite a Supreme Court injunction brought on by Coles Management on July 28th. The strike not only resulted in a far better EBA for the workers on the site, but also demonstrated the tremendous power of the organized working class. Joining us now is Heath Lamaro, an organizer for the National Union of Workers. Uh, Heath, welcome to Stick Together. Hi, Dennis. Uh, now, Heath, uh, can you tell us uh, about the result of the strike for the workers um, or over the Polar Fresh? Yeah, sure. Look, it was an amazing victory for our members out there at the Polar Fresh uh, Cold Storage DC in Laverton. Um, we're really, really happy with the result and our members heading back to work the, over the last couple of days. and should be The shed should be back and operational by the end of the week. But we're ecstatic with the outcome. Um, we believe... The offer, the final offer, um, ticks off on most of our key claims and uh, with a little bit more as well. And uh, we also saw a lot of images on social media showing, you know, empty dairy product shelves at, um, uh, at the coal supermarkets around Victoria. So it really looks like the strike had a really massive economic impact uh, on the company as well. Yeah, well, I have to take your word for that, Dennis. Uh, I think over the last couple of days I've been too busy to go into a coal supermarket myself, but I have seen plenty of photos and images online of the shelves drying up. It just shows you that when a large cold storage shed with up to 600 workers, uh, when, when workers withdraw their labour, uh, that work cannot be done easily. Um, I think the shed, the company had up to, up to about seven strike-breaking sheds in place and also shipping country stores out of an STA shed in uh, South Australia and pushing work down from the Polar Fresh shed in New South Wales. So yeah, so they had a massive, put massive pressure on, on both Polar Fresh and Coles alike. And we believe that um, we maximise that pressure at the right time 
to get the, to get the best possible outcome for our members and our members are ecstatic. And uh, what has been the response like from the community in general and the other NUW worksites? Fantastic, to be honest. Um, we know that the Polifresh Shed's a large distribution shed out there in Melbourne's west. We have a number of NUW sheds nearby that we had ongoing messages of support and donations coming from other NUW sheds. We had massive support from the other unions that came down to support and other groups as well that contributed either through the donation of food or money to maintain the picker line. And um, uh, what do you think this uh, the victory really means for the NUW's wider campaign against uh, the insecure jobs and uh, casualisation? It's huge, Dennis. I, I think this shows that when workers are willing to unite, stand together and actually take on uh, big companies like Polar Fresh and Coles, that they can win secure jobs, they can win work with where they have dignity and respect, and they, ha- and they can win jobs where they can actually have some capacity to have control over their working lives and actually be able to budget for their families and their lives in general. I think these are some of the real key things that are affecting workers right around this country. And I believe in, through this dispute, it, it really shows them workers do stay united in a union that you can achieve more secure work. So do you think we might see uh, more similar industrial actions like around Victoria and other places with similar conditions, as inspired by the victory of Polar Fresh? Yeah, look, I think it's very important that unions continue to to educate their members around insecure work. And I think it's, I think it's crucial that unions work together to fight against insecure work. It's something that's, that's pretty widespread move, uh, throughout the movement's workplaces. I believe as a result of this dispute that that our union and more unions will continue to take up the fight, not just only for wages and conditions, but secure work where we can fight against casualisation and underemployment. Excellent. Well, here, thank you so much for joining us uh, and stick together. No worries. Thanks, Dennis. I appreciate your time. We will hear a more detailed account of the Polar Fresh strike later in the programme from one of the delegates on site. In the meantime, we wanted to give you an update on the ongoing situation with the strike at the Carlton United Breweries. The locked-out workforce is standing strong and proud even as they are going on the eighth week of the dispute. They are still adamant about the company management's proposed 65% wage cut and insecure individual contracts. Uh, Joining us now is Steve Diston, an organizer with the Electrical Trades Union. Uh, Steve, thanks for being with us on Stick Together. You're welcome. Excellent. Now, uh, Steve, tell us, what's the mood been like among the comrades down the picket line at Abbotsford? Well, the morale's better than ever, mate. Um, week by week, the result goes stronger. Um, the guys see that the community's getting on board and, you know, that involves them to continue the struggle. And to be honest, our organisation down the picket gets better each week. And as the dispute goes on, each week longer brings us one week closer to victory. So, no, I think things pretty good down there. Oh, excellent. And what's been the technical situation like over at the factory? You know, has the production decreased further uh, because of the the picket? You know, just how just how just how bad is uh, is is the strike hitting the company management there? Okay, so um, in order to answer that question, you've got to understand a little bit about how the beer making process operates. So basically, please in this please explain. Age, please explain. There's a lot of co- our listeners would want to know about that. No, no worries. Well, in this day and age, like, like most manufacturing, anything that's stayed on shore here is, is generally very high capacity, high volume manufacturing. 
So in order to do that, you've got to have very complex machinery. So it's actually beer. Beer is made um, on production lines with a lot of machinery. Most of it's automated machinery driven. Complex automated machinery breaks down. You have the electricians and the fitters fix it. So they're the people that actually fix the machines that make the beer. So since this dispute has kicked off, before the dispute, the boys were putting on average about 1.1 million cases of beer out the door by volume. Now we're sitting at around 400,000. So significant decrease in the output. And to be frank with you, we can drink it quicker than they can make it. Right, and uh, I imagine there's also been a lot of uh, breakdowns and a lot of you know disruptions at the, fa- at the factory as well. Because I'm I'm guessing the uh, the scabs which the company brought in they're nowhere near as skillful as the uh, as the workforce sitting uh, out there in the front. Yeah, you're spot on, mate. They don't have the technical skill. They don't have the experience, and um, they just they've got no idea in comparison to our people. You know, and and it's interesting that. This dispute has been such a demonstration of what our workers are actually worth in there. You know, if they ever needed justification for their wages prior to this dispute, the output of the factory has given them all the justification they've ever needed. Uh, now, tell us a bit about the boycott CUB campaign. You know, the the boycott of the, of the different beer products um, owned by the CUB. How effective, how effective has that uh, been in this whole situation? Well, to be honest with you, there's two schools of thought um, when it comes to this. One one school of thought is people want to boycott a product that they're disgusted with how the company operates, and I completely understand that, you know, and I, and I sympathise with that, um, you know, and I, I imagine that's hurting the reputation long-term of this company. The other, the other school of thought is drink it quicker, <laughs> so we empty out those warehouses quicker, yeah. and that brings the company to their knees quicker, because ultimately... Um, when the beer runs out, the dispute's over and we win. And um, at the moment, we know that some beer types are starting to cease to exist. And um, the sooner that those shelves that Dan Murphy's and BWS, you know, and Liquorland, the sooner they empty, the quicker we have this company right where we need it. Uh, empty, empty shelves, uh, empty beer shelves at Dan Murphy's. Now that's a terrifying thought. Well, mate, okay. I can I can tell you right now the trajectory we're heading on at the moment. It'll be a dry grand final because Carlton Draft's the only thing they serve there, and I'll tell you what, I won't be serving any if there's none left. Mm, mm, all right. A lot of people. I feel like a lot of people, a lot of organisations have been been made very aware of uh, of just what just how badly the company has treated the workers. You're, you're spot on, mate. The reason that it, it's it's resonating so well in the community is that. People are fed up with this multinational greed. You know, they're sick of these big corporations coming into our communities and not respecting the people in the communities in which they sell their products, not respecting the workforces, and just not respecting, you know, the Australian way of life, which is a fair go. Mm-hmm, exactly. And uh, what's what's been uh, are the other kind of response from the community and the other unions um, throughout the last uh, the past weeks? Yeah, fantastic, mate. We've had so much support. We've had donations of everything you can imagine you need on a picket line from firewood to food, you know, to clothing. You, you name it, um, we've had people jump on board with Bright and Centre, you know. We've even had a, a local brewer, um, Brew, they call themselves, they dropped off um, 100 slabs of beer for the boys, you know, awesome. <laughs> to, keep them, 
you know, it's, you, you name it, we've had it. We've had children's books donated to the for the children of the dispute. You know, everything. Excellent, mate. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, really good. To, really good to hear. And there's also uh, the rally, the reunion rally is coming up on Thursday or during lunchtime. Is that correct? Yeah. So every Thursday we have a rally, and um, this week it's at the brewery again. So we have some, um, you know, some members of the community. Some uh, we've had union leaders and you know, community leaders and, and politicians and the like, social commentators come down and talk about, you know, what's happening and why it's important. And um, it's really, really important that we get that message out there. And and the community support, you know, right outside the factory gates, the company sees it and they see what's building on social media. They can see the sides turned against them, and we have the moral high ground in this dispute. You know, they know they're the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, Steve, thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Stick Together and uh, helping to update us on the ongoing battle for the brewery. You're more than welcome. Thank you. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. We just heard from Steve Diston of the Electrical Trades Union about the ongoing dispute over the CUB brewery. Now let's get back to the Polar Fresh strike by the NEW members and delegates in Melbourne's West. As promised, we'd go into a bit more detail of how the strike unfolded and its wider effects on union organising. We have with us now Ryan Laws, a delegate at the Polar Fresh Truganina site in Melbourne's West. Uh, Ryan, thanks so much for being with us and Stick Together. Thanks for having me, Dan. Right. Uh, Ryan, could you tell us um, a background about the strike? You know what what the conditions were like uh, over there on the site. Uh, well, uh, it's a, a very large cold storage warehouse in, uh, in Melbourne's West. There's about uh, between six and seven hundred workers there, depending on the time of year. Uh, we handle all the refrigerated produce, meats, milk, uh, dairy, chicken, eggs all that kind of stuff uh, for Coles in Victoria and Tasmania. Uh, so pretty much everything that goes in a refrigerator in Coles in Victoria, Tasmania comes through our warehouse. Um, so there's sort of, there's quite a lot of industrial power there, but there's obviously uh, what it means is that the work expectations of output are extremely high. Um, it's very repetitive manual labor, um, which is just do the same job sort of over and over again each day. So the work in and of itself can be quite grueling, uh, while at the same time also uh, meaning that um, just the amount, the volume of stock that goes through our warehouse gives gives us quite a bit of potential power. Mm-hmm. All right. And what was the mood like uh, of the workers before 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 the ballot was taken, like especially the political mood? Um, well, the- I think that a lot of workers are quite disappointed that we didn't get as good of a deal as. Uh, as they'd hoped for in the last EBA negotiations about three years ago. Uh, so in the last EBA, there, there was quite a lot of sentiment for a strike, um, but that sentiment wasn't really realized, um, and, and the shed was quite divided about what they thought. So I think over the last three years, the workers have really had uh, a lot more time uh, to you know, realize that they wanted to get a better agreement. Um, and it's also meant that the sentiments for strike and, and the anger uh, at management sort of only increased. So I think there's quite a large uh, amount of, there can be quite a lot of, large amount of management bullying there, but also just, 
you know, the grinding life of, of work in a place like this means that, uh, you know, people just feel like they just get pushed around all the time. And then when you factor that in with, with the fact that we, um, for a warehouse of our size, especially compared to Woolworth sheds of our size, were uh, quite low paid. Um, and so it meant that people had a sense that we're below industry standards. We do a huge amount of work uh, and we just get keep getting pushed around by management and, and they just sort of had enough and they were ready for a proper fight. Mm, all right. And of course, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that willingness to fight really showed up in the ballot that was taken because of what I heard, 90, 94% of the members on site actually supported an indefinite strike action. Yeah, That's right, which as far as I'm aware is pretty unprecedented in an NUW for a shed of this size. Um, and I think as well, it's also the first time that a cold storage shed has struck under the NUW's uh, tenureship. Um, so I think it sort of says that on the one level, the demands in and of themselves are perfectly reasonable. You know, people wanted $30 an hour and they wanted to, you know, permanent secure jobs and to get rid of the labor hire company. Um, you know, over the over recent years, labor hire for a lot of workers has meant, you know, incredible job insecurity. Uh, they're often pushed to work harder and longer and faster than other workers, uh, and they're used to undermine conditions and pay on the site. Um, and so, you know, it's meant things like, on during the busy seasons, you'll be forced to work 50 or 60 hours a week. And in the slow seasons, you're lucky to get 15 or 20 hours a week. So that sort of job insecurity had just been grinding on people for, for a long time. And so there was a real sentiment to get rid of that and to have actual, you know, secure permanent jobs in the shed. But I think there was also a real sentiment uh, in which people wanted to sort of assert themselves. And the workers were looking uh, for a struggle like this in order to be able to, um, you know, I guess, be able to have some sort of sense of union power in the place as well mm -hmm. and not just feel like everything was up to management and, and they had no say over anything. Mm. And could you briefly, briefly tell us about how the strike actually progressed over the course of uh, three days last week? Sure. Well, so uh, what a couple of weeks ago we had our protected action ballot and got to 94%. Uh, and whenever that happened, it became pretty clear that a strike was going to happen. And so we, um, we basically spent the next week or so uh, just getting people ready and getting people prepared and trying to talk to everybody about what a strike was going to mean. Um, in the days leading up to the strike, management pulled everybody into their office and, uh, you know, threatened the jobs of all the agency staff, um, started spreading all these rumors. Uh, anyway, it's sort of they tried to shake things up a little bit and, and, and scare people out of striking. Uh, but we ended up... Um, you know, so we had things like mass meetings in the lunchroom in order to be able to get people, uh, you know, in order to reassure people that it was going to be fine, that nobody was going to get the sack, that we we're going to defend everybody's jobs, um, that kind of thing. Uh, when the day came to strike, uh, just the atmosphere was just incredible. Uh, you know, the defiance, the militancy, the spirit of, of the workers was uh, was really inspiring. Um, we uh, had uh, running picket lines across a series of warehouses. Um, we were able to disrupt supplies enough to basically bring uh, coal's distribution in the state to the verge of collapse. Um, and all of this meant that the company uh, was forced into a position in which they had to cede uh, to a whole series of our, uh, of our demands, but also... Uh, come a long way to our two key demands, which were job security and, and a significant pay rise. Uh, and so, 
you know, people on the actual picket line were incredibly enthusiastic um, and and defiant, uh, and that led to a position in which the company was forced to begin to negotiate seriously with us. Mm, right. And could you tell us um, about some of the details of the final EBA that was uh, um, agreed upon, especially in terms of wages, wage increase, as you mentioned earlier, that a lot of workers were severely underpaid previously? Well, the, the, the final wage uh, agreement was a bit complex. There's about six pay rises in total for the three-year agreement, well, 33-month agreement, uh, but it ends up amounting to roughly uh, 4.75, I believe, percentage uh, increase each year, which is just shy of the CFMEU, which isn't too bad. Um, and then in addition to that, we also uh, got a whole series of clauses that pretty strictly limit the use of labor hire. I think it cuts the overall numbers down to about half of what they are now, uh, as well as things like a, a hard six-month conversion clause uh, and a whole series of... Um, uh, and a clause that has to do with... Um, uh, people that getting people getting permanent jobs and getting converted over it has to be based on length of service, as opposed to whoever the management's favorite is or or, or anything like that. So it's meant that we, um, you know, you know, in a period in which it just seems like everybody's being outsourced and casualized and uh, and that sort of thing. Um, the fact that we've been able to reverse that trend at Polafresh, I think, is. It's quite significant. We, we didn't get all the way there. We didn't get rid of labor hire altogether, but we went a long way towards that ultimate goal. Excellent. And, and they also, during the strike, there also seemed to be a lot of solidarity happening between the, uh, the workers on site who, 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 who come from different um, countries and uh, origins, like from, you know, you had Australians and Kiwis and uh, uh, Philippines, from uh, comrades from the Philippines, from Samoa, yeah. What um, uh, uh, what, what was like? What was the cooperation like during that time? Uh, I think that if you were to talk to any of the workers that were involved, uh, the, one of the first things they would say is that they just felt like they were part of a huge family. Um, that people that they had never really spoken with or, or hang out with much on the job, all of a sudden became uh, they became extremely close with. You know, when you spend three days on a picket line. Uh, you end up getting to know pretty well your comrades that are there with you. And so I think a lot of the the national boundaries that sort of existed in those shed uh, possibly dissolved a little bit and, and broke down a little bit, which is which is pretty cool to see. Uh, but, yeah, it's an incredibly diverse workforce, um, people from the Philippines, North Africa, Samoa, New Zealand, um, all over the place. Uh, and the fact that all of these workers came together for their own common interests um, really, I think, says something about working-class struggle uh, and, and what it's really about. We did get a lot of solidarity from other unions, um, from the ETU, the CFMEU, the MUA, uh, sections of the teachers, um, and really I think that that's absolutely crucial uh, for, for the labor movement today. Uh, and, and we went into it, uh, we went into this strike uh, trying to make a conscious effort that we wanted to try to uh, link it up with other warehouses, with other, with other sheds in the NUW, but also with other unions as much as we possibly could. Um, and I think that a, a series of other uh, unions had already been made aware of what was going on well before the strike actually started, and this really helped to broaden it out as much as possible. Um, and, and like I said, it wasn't just other unions. It was also within the NUW. You know, we went and spoke at Americold 
whenever the day before that we struck in order to tell them about what was going on. Uh, we, you know, we had um, signs of solidarity uh, from uh, warehouses, both in Coles, but also at Woolworth sheds as well, uh, not just in Victoria and Queensland as well. So it's about trying to build, you know, a union movement that doesn't just focus on the rights and the paying condition on, you know, a one side or in one industry, but about, uh, you know, the pay and the conditions and, and, and the situation of the working class more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, I think the fact that we went into it with that orientation really meant that you saw, you know, perhaps uh, a bit more of that than you might see in some other in some other struggles. Mm. But it's also it's also quite beautiful to see a um, an action like almost like a spontaneous action uh, like this, also embracing the anti-racist struggle simultaneously with the industrial struggle. And uh, right, well, just one last thing, uh, Ryan. What do you think uh, this result really means for the future of the cold storage and warehousing workers uh, and the in the industrial actions uh, throughout or throughout Victoria, but also throughout Australia? Uh, well, it's tough to know that, you know, I think, um, I think the union movement, uh, has a lot of work to do if it's going to, uh, be able to effectively, uh, represent the interests of, of modern workers. And, and I think, uh, I think there's some things that, you know, you could take out of this about, you know, the fact that we wanted such, um, ambitious demands, you know, a, a 12, $30 an hour up front would have meant a 12% pay rise in the first year, you know, a liberal, not not minimizing or reducing labor hire, but we wanted to get rid of it altogether. I think those sorts of demands really inspired people and galvanized them behind us. And I think if the union movement is going to inspire people and galvanize workers behind them, uh, then we need to start talking about not what's acceptable or what the bosses are willing to give us without much fuss. Uh, and we need to start talking about what do the workers actually want and what is actually going to improve people's lives in a real way and figure out what we have to do to fight for that. Whether or not any of those lessons can be taken out of it, I, I, I don't know. I, mean, I, think t- I think time will tell, but I think it points the strike pointing the way forward for uh, where we should be looking to actually take the union movement forward, and that is that we need to uh, reject what's on offer from modern capitalism. We need to reject the idea that you have to accept concessions, that you have to limit your demands, that you have to do whatever is profitable for big business, um, and we need to be prepared to fight. And that means striking, you know, whenever you're, uh, you know, the worker's most powerful weapon is, is striking. And so if unions are going to take away the worker's most powerful weapon, uh, then really they're just handcuffing themselves in, in, in a fight with, with big business. Um, so really, if, if it meant that a few more people thought more seriously about, about you know, some uh, more serious demands, but also about whether or not it's possible to strike and, and to have a serious struggle, um, then, then I'd be pretty happy with that. Excellent. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on Stick Together and telling us the, the, the background story of such a magnificent victory by the uh, workers at Polo Fresh. Uh, thanks very much, Dennis, for having me. I appreciate it. That was Ryan Laws from the NUW finishing off our show today. Apart from the before-mentioned rally at Abbotsford Brewery at 12.30pm on Thursday, August 4th, there will also be an anarchist book fair, this time held at the Brunswick Town Hall on August 14th from 10am to 5pm. And don't forget the 10th annual John Cummins Memorial Dinner on August 27th at the Flemington Racecourse. Now I have to say goodbye and adios to Stick Together and all your listeners, as I shall be departing 3CR to join the workers' struggle in Spain. You may yet hear from me on the community airwaves, as I will try to bring to you the latest developments regarding the political and union struggles in Europe. 
Farewell, and thank you for listening to my news and stories, and thanks to the Community Broadcasting Federation for their continued support of the program.